Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. And it is time to be entertained at half past nine on a Saturday morning because the New Year's Honours list is out and one of our most celebrated uh, journalists and and also broadcasters, uh, Phil Gifford, was uh, named an officer of the New Zealand Order of Merit and Phil joins us right now. Congratulations, mate. Oh, Stephen, thanks very much indeed. (laughs) Indeed, mate. It's, uh, yeah, it's been lovely. I mean, one of the, just very quickly, the, the nicest part about it, which I hadn't anticipated really, is this morning, so many people that I've known for a long time, like your good self, have actually got in touch. And that's that, that's been a really, really lovely bonus. It's, I suppose a bit like being on Facebook. They remember your birthday, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of it, yeah. But this is a this is a this is a thing that that uh, is sort of out there and blow me down. So there you, you s- go, people, s- people get in touch. So you've been doing this yeah. for fifty odd years, man. Um, were you al- yeah. were you always curious? Yeah, I think so. I was when I was at when I was at high school in, in Waihe, and and even younger than that, I think. Oh, well, actually, no, I was worse than that, Stephen. I was a sports nerd. While I played it a bit myself, and and did all did basically took on tried almost every sport. Uh, and because I was a fairly tall for my age, I was a very average rugby player and, and so on and so forth. But believe it or not, for my, for my 11th birthday, I wish I was making this up, but I'm not. For my 11th birthday, I got my mum and dad gave me a thing called The History of New Zealand Rugby, Volume 2 by A.C. Swan, which was basically like a collection of rugby almanacs. So I can I can tell you, for example, at the fullback of the 1951 All Black team that toured Australia was M.S. Cockrell from Taranaki. Oh God! Okay, uh, I, I read some. Uh, well, uh, slightly, but uh, but it's also passion. <laughs> hey, I, I, here's something. Did you did you know? I, I regaled the story this morning uh, when Sky Television first went to air with a thing called the opening shot on May 18, 1990. John Gallagher. Right was announced with yeah. with the great Bill McCarthy as the rugby the rugby expert. Did you know prior to that? Because I I lost the story of the year. He was going to league the next day. Did you have a inkling? Did you with all your sources? Did you know that was going to happen? No. So well done you if, if you had the inside all on that one, mate. No, <laughs> no, I, I, no one did. Oh, this, this, this is when he took off to the UK to play league. That's mate. correct. He, oh, he, I said to him at the bar of the LSE, the old LSE pub, I said, mate, would you ever play league? He goes, nah, nah, I wouldn't play for money. And he buggers off for about three million quid. <laughs> yes, well, and why wouldn't he? Oh, why wouldn't he? All right, let's let's talk about uh, your ability as a journalist. Was it a natural thing straight away when you wrote your first story? And, and what was the first story? The first story I actually posted on Facebook about a year ago, um, and I can just about remember it word for word. Um, Croydon Bush, age 16, an apprentice plasterer from Mount Wellington, was admitted to Middlemore Hospital with a fractured leg after he fell off a skateboard. 
I didn't of... even know that in 1965, January 1965, when I wrote that story for the New Zealand Herald, Stephen, I didn't even know they had bloody skateboards in 1965. Who knew? You got me on that one as well. Uh, but the rugby has always been top of, top of the yeah. pile. Okay. Does it come simply back to that, that almanac that mum and dad gave you, or did you genuinely, at the time that you were growing up, have a real passion for the game? I adored rugby from the time I was old enough to know what it was, mate. And I mean, my, my life, my whole life would have been blighted, but thank God. I went to a little country school, Waihi College, which mm. I just loved everything about it, had great teachers. And I had a teacher called Charlie Dowdle that took me for history in the sixth and seventh forms. And he also coached the first 15. And Charlie's passed away. And later on, he was the headmaster of Mount Russell Grammar, I think at the time when Russell Crowe was there, but that's by the by. Um, but he put me in the first 15 in the last two years, and so that was, I would have, my whole life would have been <laughs> sort of blighted if I'd never managed to make the first 15 at Waihi. But yeah, I always loved it. I, I loved playing it. I loved talking about it. I loved watching it. When I was 12 years old, my dad and I, at half past five in the morning in Waihi, got on a road services bus, drove up to Eden Park, got in the queues. The gates opened at 11 o'clock in the morning. We'd been up there since about eight o'clock, queuing outside Eden Park. And we watched my first rugby test. We watched on a muddy terraces on the Dominion Road end of Eden Park. We watched the Lions beat the All Blacks nine to six. That's three tries to two penalty goals by Don Clark. And and from from that moment forward, and to this day, Stephen, look, if I ever went to, a, found myself going to a rugby test to report on it, as I've been so lucky to do since 1965, if I ever went there and sat in the press box and thought, oh, God, I'm bored. This is another bloody rugby test. Then I, I would... Nobody would have to sack me. I would give up. But I still, I still, look, don't get me wrong, I'm not quite as excited as that 12-year-old boy was yeah. in 1959, but I still always go to a rugby game. And it's a bit Pollyanna-ish, but it's true. I always go to a rugby game, and, and to, to most sports events, actually, but particularly rugby, always expecting to be really quite excited by what I see. I'm sometimes disappointed, but, I, but I, that's how I start. How, how did you not become a cynic when looking at rugby and what and and the travails that we've seen with uh, professional rugby? Well, it was the thing for me, Stephen, that, that I had to get over more than professional rugby. Professional rugby's never bugged me that much because I just felt you've got to be realistic. And it, it, because back in 1995, um, Kerry Packer was offering massive money to the All Blacks. And apart from John, Joan Alomu, virtually every All Black initially, I think, was pretty prepared to go with Kerry Packer because... They were going from sort of $10 a day allowance to potentially a million dollars a year to play rugby. But the, the, the biggest test of my love for rugby by a mile, Stephen, was actually 1981 Springbok yeah. Tour. I covered the whole tour for the New Zealand Listener magazine. And it was, it, yeah, it, it was really hard because the, the thing was there, there was there was violence from both sides. I was opposed to the tour. I, I didn't think that they should have invited the Springboks. I'd been to South Africa very briefly in 1970 and was horrified at what I saw of apartheid. And as far as I was concerned, I was with Graham Murray and Bruce Robertson. I didn't think that, that, that we should play against the team from an apartheid-era country. But uh, what horrified me was the violence and the divisions in New Zealand society. And the thing was that on the one hand, you had the people who were, who were against the tour, and I, my heart was kinder with them. But on the other hand, my heart was also with the rugby fanatics, because I'm a rugby tragic as well. You know what I mean? And so, yeah, it was it was a brutal time. It took me, in the end, the only way I reconciled it in my mind, Steve, was, and I, maybe I was being hypocritical, hopefully not, 
was that it didn't turn me away from rugby because I felt rugby in itself has no politics. Rugby's just a game with a set of rules and an oval-shaped ball that you run around after. Rugby doesn't decide to cosy up to um, appalling regimes like South Africa was in the 1980s. Yeah, I remember my brother was in the, at the Hamilton game and he was inside and he, he vividly remembers pushing back protesters. He was there to see the footy, but he said the the fallout in, in Hamilton itself lasted for a good year. Uh, people, oh, you know, yeah. fr- friends against friends, the whole nine yards, and it, and it was probably a, a seminal moment in, in in this country's history. But oh goodness me! Look, you've interviewed many, many, many rugby or All Black coaches. Who's the best one that gave you honest answers? Because I sometimes feel like we're we're now just being treated as dum dums. Well, first of all, I think we'll find. I don't think you'll find that with Scott Robertson because no. Scott, while 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 Scott who is a lot more astute than people who are sort of blind to his other attributes and only see the breakdancing. But Scotty Robertson, I think, is, will will be very, very enlightening. Um, going back in the time tunnel, it's, I suppose, let me think, Brian Lahore was a wonderful oh, person yeah. to deal with during the 87 Rugby World Cup. He was, he was fantastic. And I also um, got on extremely well with Graham Henry and Steve Hansen. Um, but gradually over time, yes, I agree, there's, there's been, and I think it's an important thing for New Zealand rugby to check out because, and getting back to the journalism thing, mm. is that I think there's now this idea that you can maybe spoon feed the fans to be blunt, really bland, yeah. easy. Look, take this, it'll slip down easy. You'll hardly notice you've, you've heard it. Um, that stuff that is completely run by the organisation. Whereas I think that it, it's terribly important, I think, for rugby to realise that, yes, journalists will say nasty things about rugby sometimes and make comments that you don't like, but the journalists in the end, all we are, is just a conduit for the public. We're just the we're just the people there, basically representing the rugby public, the rugby fans. And so, give those journalists, give the give journalists who you trust, and it doesn't mean that you trust them that they're going to kiss your butt all the time. But give journalists access to players because that's something which has become, I think, increasingly more difficult with time. Yeah, I I feel like media managers are just media protectors now, player protectors, and then they're they're missing the boat above the the stories. That well, well Stephen, Stephen, yeah, 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 mate. Just very quickly, I I just I was trying to think of an example of that. Here's a classic example, mate. Uh, 1980, the Lister magazine wanted me to do a cover story on Graham Murray, so I rang Graham, not a public relations person. He said, "Yeah, that'd be fine. Come on down." And I stayed for two nights down on the family farm in yeah. Taranaki. Now that's not going to happen now, and and but that's a, and I and I'm not I'm not saying that all of a sudden the All Black captain should be opening his doors and welcoming journalists and having them stay with him. But I do think that somewhere, maybe in the middle ground between that openness and the current situation, would be a good place for rugby to go to. Um, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. And let's be blunt: you and I both know it actually comes down to the coach. If the coach says, I'm going to open the doors and all my players are going to open the doors, you watch. You watch what changes. And I'm, I'm going to be intrigued to see if, if Scott does that. Uh, two other subjects mm. I, w- I want to touch on. Yeah. Your, your relationship sure. with one of the loveliest athletes I know, and I have a um, – she's a mate, but that's about it, not as close as you. Uh, Dame Val, uh, what is it about yeah. you and her that, that you just click? 
it's one of those wonderful gifts that life gives you sometimes, isn't it? So my wife, Jan, and I, we'd, we'd never met her. And the mad butcher, Sir Peter Leach, who's a mutual friend I know, mm-hmm. um, Sir Peter asked if I would interview Val for one of his famous sporting luncheons, uh, charity sporting luncheons. We went to that, and it was one of those things where I was just astounded by the woman about how lovely she was, about how intelligent she was, and how articulate she was and how warm she was. And then, by wonderful coincidence, not long afterwards, I got a phone call from the publishers of her book, and they said, oh, we're we're doing a book with Valerie Adams, and we wondered how you'd feel about writing. I said, holy smoke, don't bloody hesitate. Yes, 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 yes. And so, doing, doing her book, she is she is an extraordinary woman, and and it's you know sometimes there are people in your life that you just and I've been really lucky. I've I've never written a book with a person I didn't like, and with lots and lots of people, we've become very dear friends. But Valerie is really special, and and, and as you know, she's got she's got a manner and she's got a dignity, but she's also funny as all get out and completely down to earth and occasionally totally outrageous. And put it all together, yeah, she's just and Jan and I. I, I think I said to, to um, Chris Ratto at the Herald when he interviewed me for about this thing that, that I I can't think of a lovelier thing to say about somebody than she has said publicly. <laughs> she regards my darling wife Jan and I <laughs> as her Palangi parents. You know, so <laughs> you can't you can't ask for a lovelier thing. Yeah, than that, Stephen. I, I just ho- I just hope she's happy off the park, right? You know, another marriage sort of has come to a uh, you know quite some time ago, and I just hope she finds finds happiness there. I know she's incredibly happy with her kids, but you know where I'm going with that, right? Yeah, yeah, and 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 obviously we feel exactly the same, and, yeah. and I she deserves she deserves as happy a life as anybody could imagine. I didn't realise that boxing was your guilty pleasure. Yeah, I know. It's well, mate. I came to Auckland when I was eighteen years old, and I'd never seen a professional boxing match. And I weaselled my way from the general newsroom after about a year into the sports department, and I started going um, to the Waverley Street Gymnasium. Now. At that time in New Zealand, that was 1966, uh, my second year at the Herald, I had, in, in provincial New Zealand, the first Polynesian people that I met, the first Pacifica people I met, were boxers like Manuel Santos and Toro George and Eddie Wolf. And so suddenly I'm meeting these guys and I just became fascinated by the whole thing. I mean, I was never, ever tempted for one tiny second, Stephen, to step into the ring. Um, and I know you've put the gloves on and bugger that for a merry <laughs> yeah, Friday, mate. Yeah, but, copy that. But, <laughs> I know, but I, on the other side of the coin, I found the whole atmosphere and the people, yeah. and, and it's, I, I, it, it's a weird thing, really, but certainly with the, with the boxers that I got to know, um, with, 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 with those folk, with Manny and Toro and a lovely guy called Cassie Milford that was New Zealand amateur champion, these blokes were the, some of the kindest, most gentle-natured sort of people I'd ever met. I think they got all of their aggression out in training and in the ring. Uh, but as time went by and I got a bit older, I realised how much boxing had damaged a lot of those guys, these guys that I really, really cared for and, and had enormous affection for. And so getting back to it, on the one hand, if suddenly I was the ruler of the world, to be brutally honest, I would probably say nobody's ever allowed to box again because no matter how much you cut it, 
it's got to eventually, in most cases, do some damage. And you look at even the great Muhammad Ali, what it did to him, sort of thing, you know. But on the other hand, if I start watching a boxing match, then, yeah, that's why it's my guilty pleasure, because once I watch it, once I've watched one round, I've got to watch the rest of it. Simple as that. And I, I, I know it's, it's sort of wrong, but I just can't help it. I'm addicted to it. Yeah, I, um, I, I've, having done three fights, well, made at least one of them last the three rounds I had to, uh, coming into contact with uh, Henry Schuster. Uh, you'd know Henry Schuster, yeah. and yeah. Uh, you talk about softly spoken uh, someone, gentleman with an incredible boxing knowledge, and and I think the key word you said is family, man. It's people. People make boxing. Yeah. And so, so I want to know yeah. uh, what you think of Joseph Parker and what he's just done recently. Oh, I think it's just extraordinary, you know. And and I'm I'm just thrilled for him. That funny enough, it was one of those things when they. So when they uh, announced the weights at the weigh-in for the fight with Wilder, and I and they said this is the lightest he's been for several years, and I thought you beauty, because to me the thing about Joseph Parker that makes him so brilliant is he's he's a boxer, not just a fighter, you know, and it's the speed of hand as as you know, mm. being a boxing enthusiast <laughs> yourself. Yeah, that's that that speed of hand. No, but but, but speed of hand is sort of everything, and. And he's very skilled, and I'm I'm just thrilled for him because I, I I think I wouldn't be at all surprised if if he manages to get into the ring with Anthony Joshua. Apart from the Saudis paying him about a billion dollars, no doubt to do yeah. that, and good on him. Take it because yeah. by God, if there's one sport where people deserve to be paid highly, it's boxing. Um, if he manages to get in the ring with Anthony Joshua, I I'm with you. really I, think that we might see Joseph crowned world champion again. I, I, I'm with you on this one. I think, I, and I think, I, and some might not believe me, but I'm not so sure about Joshua's chin. Hey, before I let you go, and you and Jan can take mm. a million more calls and have some bubbles to celebrate your New Year's honour. <laughs> is there one story, one story, that you had to chase so hard that made it the most satisfying story to get and then print? Easily, easy one, that. Oh. Funny enough, it wasn't the person I liked. But in, in 19, Jesus, when was it? 1994, the Springbok team were here. And a guy called Louis Late, Dr. Oh, Louis Late, who was yes. head of African rugby, who was possibly the most pig-like man that was ever in rugby administration in the history of the world. It's all right, I'm not libeling him, Stephen, because he's passed away. Yeah, I know so, that, yeah. So don't, don't, don't hit the dump button. <laughs> dump button. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> anyway um, Bob Howe. Um, I was writing oh, wow, a, an interview every week for Rugby News, and, and Bobby gave me a ring and said, look, Louis Late's apparently going to be out here following the Springboks around. He'd make a great interview, which I agreed it would, and he said, can you, can you get hold of him? And he said, just mention my name, because Bob had had quite a lot to do with, with Late, and Bob had actually been to South Africa a few times as a guest of the South African Rugby Board. I went, sure. So I ring up the hotel that Late's staying at, or the Springboks staying at. He's at the same place. I get him. I go, I go, Dr. Late, I'm sorry to bother you. My name's Phil Gifford. I work for Rugby News, and Bob Howitt has asked me if I could possibly arrange to do an interview with you. And you would have thought, Stephen, from his reaction, that I'd said, hey, Louie, you fat prick, I want to talk with you, you moron. <laughs> because <laughs> he, went, he went, you, you are a rude man. You're interrupting me. I'm a very busy person. I don't have time for this nonsense. Bang, down goes the phone. So Crikey. So I ring up Bobby and say, look, Bob, this is what happened. And, and he said, well, do you want to keep trying? I said, yeah, yeah, happily. So twice a week for my own entertainment, for the next three or four weeks, I would ring Louie late. And what was really weird was the screaming and shouting at me and the abuse 
that, that, that took longer and longer and longer until he could have given me an interview on the phone. He was playing me, telling me what a jerk I was for so long. So, but he never, ever agreed to an interview. Comes the last test at Eden Park, and it was afternoon rugby in those days, and I'm waiting along with the other media guys outside the changing shed, and I look around, and in the waiting area, it's way at the back, it's Louis Late. So I go across to him, and I say, oh, Dr. Late, <laughs> my name's Phil Gifford. He said, you, you're the one that's been pestering me. You, you're a very rude person. I can't stand people like you. And I said, well, I'm very sorry, but if it's possible, could we do an interview? <laughs> and he went, all right, then. So I get have a little mini recorder, click it on, and we talk for about 15 minutes, and he gives, you know, not a bad interview. So I look down at the thing and I to click it off, and then I put my head up to say thank you very much, and he's turned his back on me and he's walked away. Now, the punchline that made this my favourite interview of, of that I've ever done was that night, and I've been to, invited to very few, but for some reason I was at the official dinner at Eden Park uh, with the All Blacks and the Springboks, and... Um, I was talking to one of the South African media guys that I knew, and I was looking around, I said, where's Louis Late? And he said, oh, he said, mate, <laughs> he was supposed to be on the team bus, but he's really, he's really angry, and, and he's refused to come to the dinner because he was late back, he missed the bus, and they went without him. Apparently, he was doing some sort of interview. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. That, that, is, that is so brilliant. Hey, Phil, I just want to say, on behalf of our community, the broadcasting community, congratulations on your New Year's honour. and uh, And a simple thank you for being one of the great storytellers. Oh, it's my pleasure, Stephen. Thanks very much for your time, mate. All right. Happy New Year too, mate. Yeah, same to you. Take care. Bye.